Welcome to Hardware Addicts, a proud member of the Destination Linux Network. Hardware Addicts is the podcast that focuses on the physical components that power our technology world. In this episode, we're going to discuss our hardware antics for the week. We will finally answer Michael's question, three weeks in the making, about archive storage. And then we're going to head to the popular camera corner with Wendy, where we're going to discuss monitor calibrations and answer yet another Michael question that he had on lenses. All of this and more coming up. So sit back, relax, and plug in, because Hardware Addict starts now. I'm Ryan, your tech guide through the universe, and with me today are my two co-hosts, Wendy, our resident photographer extraordinaire and hardware enthusiast, along with Michael, the software sage and hardware padawan. So let's find out what tech adventures everyone has had this week. Actually, instead of like your normal thing is that you go last, how about we switch it up a little bit and you go first. So what tech adventure have you had this week? That's suspicious. I wonder what you all are up to. But I'll tell you what I've been up to this week. I've been watching the worldwide developer conference that Apple puts on and they were talking about something that's been rumored in the news for weeks now and it actually happened. Apple is going ARM-based silicone. This is pretty bad news, I think, for Intel. Really bad news for Intel and some interesting news for Apple here that they would basically go back away once again from Intel and go into their own processors here, which is going to be really interesting to see what kind of impact this is going to have on all the software today that's on Apple. But also, is it going to have an impact anywhere else in the ARM world to bring software into ARM? Because now companies are going to start getting used to porting their software into an ARM architecture. But of course, Apple always has to do things slightly different. So perhaps all the work that they may do here will result in nothing for anybody else. But it's a very interesting move. Probably. Desktops. Yeah. Like everything is going to be ARM, laptops and desktops. I think the first iterations or what we know right now is that it will be their laptop line. And as I understand it, for the first two years, we're going to have a combination of MacBooks that are ARM-based and MacBooks that are Intel-based. And so they're doing that to give this transition period for people to move off. And they're also creating a bunch of applications at the same time that allow the developers to be able to easily port their apps and software that they have today over into ARM. It's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out because, you know, Apple's big but it's only 19% of the market. The rest is Windows, and then this little bitty piece is Linux, left with Linux desktop. It has a pretty big creator's market, so that's kind of where I'm curious as to how it's going to affect photography flows and video editing flows and that kind of thing. I mean, it sounds like kind of a crazy thing because they're going to have to... they're, They're essentially saying, hey, I know you like using this our platform, how about we change everything about our platform and require you to rewrite everything you already made? That sounds like 
kind of a crazy idea. And also with the giant stuff, like the video editors, like Adobe Premiere and stuff, what are the odds they're going to care? They already did. Sounds like they've already done What? Yes, Adobe already signed up. And get this, Microsoft Office signed up. Okay, all right. They have this incredible pool with individuals. Now, what's interesting about this is if you think about, as I've been exploring this Apple world to many people in the Linux community's complete horror, uh, just an exploration, (laughs) I have learned that, you know, one of the most powerful things, there's a lot of things wrong with Apple's ecosystem, but one of the things they do the best that nobody does even close to them is their integration. It is amazing how well Every product Mm -hmm. of theirs integrates with the next product. And if you think about their kind of overall goal that they seem to have of kind of merging the mobile OS and the desktop OS together in one, this is a big push to get it there because every other device, probably the devices that, not probably, they are the devices that keep Apple making so much money is in the mobile market, the iPads, the phones. And now having that desktop experience completely streamlined at least from a hardware perspective, so that what works on one is going to work on the other. It allows you to further integrate those environments so that you're really always connected to the same environment, whether you're on a phone, a tablet, or your desktop, which is pretty you interesting. You actually already bought in the Apple iPad store, phone, whatever, you now can use on your laptop. Like there was a prediction many years ago by some people saying that that, that was going to happen. And so this was not surprising to some facets of the community, but it's interesting that they actually did it because it makes sense that they'd want to because like they have so much impact on the phone side and the iPad side and that sort of stuff that they would be able to like consolidate their efforts. Uh, But it is still, I'm curious, like how drastically different will it be? Will it be like a, laptop desktop mode style of ios or is it going to be like a genuine desktop thing that's just built on arm well it's a full desktop experience with big sur is their new os that they're releasing on top of this and the fact is that their processors that they have been putting into their phones and their ipads have been doing incredible things Uh, every other company out there producing ARM, Qualcomm, and others trying to get to the speeds that the Apple ARM devices, they're kind of the threshold that Snapdragons and everything else are rated against. Their power consumption is extremely low, of course, and we've gone into that in prior episodes and explained what ARM's all about, so go check those out. But Apple's doing, you know, some amazing things on the silicone side with these chips, and There was another rumor out there. Well, it's not a rumor. There was an informer Intel engineer that said one of the big reasons why Apple left was because of Intel having a real problem with quality control on the line of processors they were shipping to Apple. And it was kind of not the only reason, but it was the cherry on top that made Apple finally make this move. Really bad news for Intel, who frankly doesn't need more bad news right now. Yeah. I would, I would hope they may do an AMD with, with, with Apple. That'd been interesting. But this is still pretty interesting, too. Yep. So, Michael, what have you been up to? So, I have a couple things. Uh, one, I bought a smartwatch, sort of. What? Uh, technic- What's a yeah. sort of smartwatch? An Apple watch? No, psh, no, of course not. That cost a lot of money. Uh, remember, I'm cheap. We talked about this previously oh, yeah, on, the, on the show. So, I bought a $30 smartwatch from Amazon. And it is a 
it's not a very good thing. It's, it requires an app on your phone and all that stuff to do 99% of everything. It's a Bluetooth-based thing, and I got it for a purpose of seeing if I can use it to wake up by like vibrating on my wrist and stuff like that so I can not have to listen to an alarm all the time. And I had no expectation of just to work. That's why I only spent like 25, 30 bucks, whatever it was. Uh, it did. It actually totally works. And uh, it's probably not going to work for everybody. So who's the maker of this inexpensive oh, smartwatch? Let me tell you. The brand is, uh, I have no idea. Oh, I I've have, not heard of. I have no idea. Wow. Are they good or are they big? I, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't know. I can't. I, I. I don't know. There's no way for me to find it. So I it's think. just kind of a so. generic smartwatch you bought. I mean, if or you want me to go look it up, yeah, I can. I mean, I think people are going to want to know what it is. There's no brand at all on the on the actual device, but yeah, I'll look if you want to wait and just edit this. This is your fault. Yes, not my I'll fault. wait and edit. Your fault. I need to know what the smartwatch is so I can make fun uh, of you. I found yeah. it. This right. is going to be hilarious. This is going to be hilarious. You know how I, on this show we have a little inside joke about how I sometimes wait forever to uh, try things that I purchase and whatever, you know, that kind of thing. It's not a joke, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I bought this. It's called a Let's Com Fitness Tracker HR. It was like $30. I didn't look at the order details or whatever. And it also might be different now. Actually, it's $26 right now. I bought this in October of 2019. Oh my. <laughs> and you're just God. now opening it? Uh, well, technically, I opened it. I just never really put the effort into trying it much. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to try this. And then I did. And it was good. <laughs> I mean, it has <laughs> so, four or 5,000 four stars. Uh, oh, I, I don't I know mean, if that means. I mean, four stars with 5,000 people rating it that. So, I mean, that looks like back in the day when it was released. Before it was a museum piece, it was a great watch. <laughs> I mean, as, as probably it is, it is so far, it is as impressively good for $26. Like, okay. I will give them that. It is, you know, it's pretty interesting in terms of like, it also tracks steps and uh, heart rate and stuff like that. I don't know how accurate it is, but in terms of like the, all that stuff, but as far as like waking me up with just vibration and not being super loud, that does work quite well. And I do like that. Nice. How are notifications on it? Does, does it have decent notifications or not? I'm pretty sure it has zero notifications. Then how is it a smartwatch? That's why I said sort of. It's a smartwatch, sort of. Fitness tracker. <laughs> it's a fitness tracker, basically. Yeah. But it has some smartness I'll issues, stick to my Casio sort of. uh, calculator watch. Mm, Perfect. Right, <laughs> what else Perfect. have you been up to, Michael? Museum piece. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm a curator. <laughs> No, I was talking about thing. Ryan, his Casio. Hey, oh. the calculator watch is a classic that never dies, you know? Some classics <laughs> should always be around, and the calculator watch is one such classic. Yeah, exactly, and the TRS-80. The other thing that I did is last a couple, week, a couple weeks ago, we talked about, uh, Wendy talked about in one of her things that she bought these earbuds, and I decided to try them, and I have been using them for, I don't know, a couple weeks now, and it's they're pretty good. Though I might have heard Wendy had some issues with them. So I'm curious what happened, Wendy. Well, let me go on my sad, sad tech road. And we'll start with the earbuds. Oh, <laughs> about no. two weeks ago. <laughs> about two weeks ago, the right earbud stopped working. Just like it'll light up. You can see it, but there is absolutely no sound coming out of it. 
I sent the company an email and I hadn't heard back from them. So I actually gave them a call yesterday, worked through everything and they're going to be sending me out a new pair because it's still within warranty range. And well, that's nice. They're, they're dead. So yes, that's good. The day before I made the call, our coffee pot broke. And let me tell you, we drink a lot of coffee in this house and we have a more fancy coffee pot, which we drink enough coffee that there was a spare coffee pot under the counter, but it was really frustrating for this coffee pot to break. We hadn't had it even a year. So I spent a lot of time on customer service with them. The coffee pot is being replaced. They're sending me out another one. Yesterday, since I was spending so much time on customer service anyway, my Fitbit stopped working and was what in is happening? I mean, holy crap, <laughs> right? So the the Fitbit was of all the customer service I had to deal with over the last couple of days, that one was the absolute worst of any of them. Ooh. And it was the the first layer of tech support only can read the the script that they've got. That's all that they can do. He gave me a case number, hung up with me, and I was supposed to try to connect it to a separate device. I tried. That didn't work. I got a hold of customer service again because I was supposed to call back. And the gal I was talking to that time is like, let's delete it on your phone, the app on your phone, and try to reconnect it there. And he said, no. She goes, you, you don't want to do any troubleshooting? He said, no, that's not my issue. I have no problem troubleshooting. I'm getting really frustrated here and I know it's not your fault, but so you'll, you'll hear some frustration in my voice. I'm not mad at you right now. I'm mad at this whole process. I do not want to do something again that I've already done. How is erasing it on my phone any different than a fresh install the app on a separate device trying to get it connect. I'm not going to do something that I've already Because the done. script says so, Wendy. Yeah. The script says so. <laughs> so she was really quiet for about 30 seconds and I thought she'd hung up on me. And finally, the response is, would you like to go advanced tech support? To my reply, yes. And they are now sending me out a new watch. This morning, my dishwasher broke. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Are you so, sure you didn't have like a electric surge that shot through the atmosphere and destroyed all of your electronics or something here? <laughs> yeah, I you had an EMP. Yeah, an EMP. I don't know whether it's my karma. I've got some something good coming or whether I'm being paid back for something, but everything is breaking. <laughs> I feel like one of those old country songs, all I need is for something to run away, except for my fish can't. Thank goodness. Well, wow. You've spent a lot of time on tech support. You've had a lot of things break. Is there anything good happening in your life? Yes, I have upgraded the kitchen system. What? Yeah. Uh-oh. Ryan's in trouble. That's, no, I'm just, I'm just playing the long game. I'm waiting for her to complete all the upgrades to her computer kitchen system. And then when she's done and she thinks she's won, bam, mm -hmm. Threadripper. <laughs> You're putting a thread ripper in the kitchen. <laughs> I might just to, just to win, just to one up me. <laughs> yeah, imagine so how fast recipes had... would show up. <laughs> <laughs> originally, it had eight gigs of RAM, and now it has sixteen. Not that it really needed that upgrade, but it was pretty cheap, and I could. I like it. I like it. You are destined and it to will win have more than your Raspberry Pi. That's why you did it. Oh, my oh, gosh. Oh, got him. And also, 
I had um oh quite a while ago we had an all-in-one HP computer that had an i7 in it and years ago it broke and I dismantled it and saved a whole bunch of parts from it and I was looking at the kitchen system one day typing along and I'm like oh my gosh I still have that CPU so originally it had an i7 or an i5 3700 I think something along those lines and the CPU that I had left over from several years ago was an i7 3770s it went amazing into that computer because it's right in the same generation that that little it's an HP elite slim desktop computer it is now has 16 gig of ram <laughs> and an i7 I don't think I should have <laughs> challenged Wendy out loud I should have <laughs> I should have done it and beat her with something and then mm -hmm. told her and now it's just this is getting ridiculous you've got when an you i7 in your kitchen <laughs> when you make it public especially when you're talking to Michael I get messages oh my <laughs> god I don't I the don't fans think have I did. betrayed me <laughs> yeah I don't think I did that but I might have this episode of Hardware Addicts and the entire Destination Linux network is now sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It is optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and so much more. You can get all of this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month, or you can try their flexible pricing for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. As Ryan would say, that's darn near free. DigitalOcean also has over 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software, languages, and frameworks. Get started on DigitalOcean for two months free with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash dln. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with that $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN. And we thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. All right, so it's time to get into our core story this week where we finally come around to answering your question, Michael. Yes! You've suffered long enough, so we're going to no, talk let's about... let's bump it to next week. Yeah, you're uh, right. Let's bump uh, it, because we could talk about Apple WWDC some more. No, but, nobody? But... But I want to I want to know the answer and stuff. All right. Well, before we get into your answer, we're going to make you suffer a little bit to make sure we catch our audience up who may not have listened to all the prior episodes, but should be. So when we talk about archival storage, we're talking about data that you're wanting to stow away and preserve for a long time, like the pictures that Wendy teaches you to take. Maybe it's a family or weddings or parents or something that you want to store for a long, long time, passwords or documents in case something happens, and you want to contain these things on some type of digital storage media. We spent the last few episodes discussing SSDs and spinning disk. So which one do you use for archiving data? Michael? Uh, I don't know. That's my question in the whole thing. <laughs> oh, oh, that's your question. Oh, I right. guess I have to answer. Right. But, I was going to use everything. I was just going to make copies on everything and just say, you know, I, I don't have to worry about whether one if I pick the wrong one because I have it on all of them. Well, the, the real answer is neither. You really don't want to use either of those by themselves. But when you said multiple backups, well, that could work. 
it, and we'll get into that. There are many articles out there that create this panic state for SSD specifically and state that they will lose their info in just a matter of days or weeks. Keep in mind, if you have your data on an SSD right now and it's sitting there, your data is all gone. No, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm completely kidding. Those articles are kind of ridiculous and they're, they're not wrong per se, but they exaggerate because they take SSDs and put them in some extreme, ridiculous temperature, really extreme, super hot or super cold, and say, well, the data was gone. Well, the drive probably was frozen into a block <laughs> beforehand, but yeah, sure, the data's gone. And the reason is because SSDs require a level of voltage to store their info. So it only makes sense that they must lose that data if they're unplugged for long periods of time and have no electricity going through them. So as temperature increases, electrons escape, floating gate faster than they would normally because of these temperatures, it ultimately is going to change that voltage state of the cells and render this data completely unreadable. So this part is true. If you store it in some stupid temperature, you're going to lose your data. <laughs> and even if you don't store it in some ridiculous temperature, you still are going to lose your data over time on an SSD. So if you have very important pictures, documents, and things like that sitting on a single SSD drive, and you even have it stored at a good average room temperature, 72 degrees Fahrenheit, something along those lines. You're going to get maybe five to 10 years. In some cases, maybe only one or two, because there's no consensus on how long it takes for that data to escape. So an SSD drive, great for your computer, amazing speeds, amazing for when you have constant power running through it, not so great to store all your precious memories on. But here's the thing. You can go away for the weekend, and if the power goes out, you come home, you're still going to have the data on your drive. Absolutely. I've had SSDs out for months, plug them back in. They're fine. All the data is still there. There's no issue. Now, you may be thinking, that's it. I'm going for a spinning disk. And the story is slightly better with spinning disks, but it's still not ideal. They're not meant for archival storage either. The mechanics will fail, they won't spin up over long periods of time, and extreme temperatures also create issues along with magnetic field deterioration, which is calculated at about 1% per year, but you also have magnetic field corruption from other magnets or motors around, so depending on where you're storing it, you could lose your data on that as well. It's pretty safe to say that if you're leaving your hard drives in extreme heat, just letting them get a sun bath or something, probably not good for them. Yeah, you don't, <laughs> you don't want, don't need a tan. for sure. And you don't want your hard drives to stare at the sun. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Just like last episode. And you also don't want to store That's them. That's called a callback. <laughs> good job on that. Good job on that. You also don't want to store them in extreme cold temperatures either. Now, the general consensus is that neither drive is really meant for this type of storage because they both have issues with data leakage. And there's, also the issue that the data itself will need to be rewritten on these drives because of things like data leakage well before the 10-year mark. So the data itself starts to deteriorate, which is a problem. So are you saying that there is no hope? No, there is hope. There are things that are made for this. It's just not SSDs or spinning drives. Now, it's not okay. that you can't use them because there are people who have things set up in, say, RAID. 
and you have multiple drives. But keep in mind, in a raid, you have constant power being supplied to these drives, right? So if you, you could use these drives for archival storage as long as you're constantly keeping them powered on. If you take the power away from these drives and you're not rewriting the data, then you're going to have issues with losing your data eventually. So if I do what I am currently doing, putting them on spinning disks inside of a, a NAS with RAID, and I turn it off when I'm not using it, is that a bad thing? As long as your RAID setup that you're using is actually rewriting that data to other drives as part of its backup process, then yes, you would be fine in that case. If it's not, then every 10 years or so, you're going to want to rewrite all of that data on your RAIDs again, because that data will deteriorate. Okay, good to know. I will hopefully remember that. If you use SSDs or spinning disks, refresh your data every couple of years, you can replace the drives at least every 10 then what you want to do is stop using them as your archival storage and use something that's actually made for this. Now, some people will say magnetic tape, which some have mentioned in the community when I was talking to them about some of their archival practices. And looking that up, it's somewhere between 10 and 20 years that magnetic tape is good for. So that's a pretty good amount of time. And again, after 10 years, though, you're going to want to write that data to something else. And then you're going to have to find something that writes to magnetic <laughs> tape that you would have in your home. But there are issues with magnetic tape because, you know, there's breakdowns in the binders, the glues used, it gets weakened, magneti magnetization and things can affect it as well. So that's not a perfect solution. Probably the number one thing I see out there for those who are wanting to store those pictures forever is there are specialty Blu-ray discs meant for archival storage. BDR discs have a projected lifetime of several hundred years. You're going to want to specifically look for those archival discs, and they will basically state that that's their lifetime guarantee that they have on them. And then you're going to want to make many backups of the same data in case one of those discs gets scratched, broken, or doesn't work. Are you talking about the M-discs? Exactly, yep. Okay, cool. Because I did look into the M-discs as well, when I was doing my first initial deep dive and they look pretty interesting. And there's also like this weird, there was this test where this guy like froze them and then like beat them up and like put a blow dryer on them and all kinds of stuff. And the, the thing that came out was that the regular DVD surprisingly worked after you, if you let it set for like two weeks or something, you could, you could get data off of it, but not all of it. It wasn't like totally safe. But the M discs were back within like a day after doing all this stuff to it, nice. and that was that was pretty cool. Uh, so how much can they hold? How much data can they hold? Well, the DVD I think it's limited based on like the same quality that you can get with a with a DVD and the same that you get with a Blu-ray is the same with the M disc. It's just the way that they're made is different. Yeah, a lot of them are between fifty and hundred gigabytes. It depends on how much money you're spending and how many you want to get uh, per disc here. It looks like you can get, for instance, five here of the M discs, the Blu-ray discs here that are 100 gigabyte for 58 bucks. So they're pretty expensive. Yeah, that probably wouldn't even cover one year for me as far yeah. as the amount of pictures I have taken in a year. Well, you're going to mm -hmm. have to spend some buco bucks and get a bunch of these and then put a drive writer in your computer again. But listen, if we're talking about important photos of your kids or family and things like that, I think it's a worthwhile investment. And I love your question, Absolutely. Michael, because so many people probably think, hey, I've got this data. 
I don't want it to get destroyed. It's very important for me. Let me unplug my drive, stick it in a safe somewhere in the basement or, you know, hide it under the bed and don't realize that their data is degrading over time potentially. And they're going to lose those memories if they don't move it to something that's actually made for archival storage. So you can look up Blu-ray archival disc or you can look up M-Disc, but just make sure it has a lifetime archival guarantee on it. Nice. nice. Oh, yeah, my entire kids' lives are in digital pictures. So if those are gone, all you know, all of those memories go with them. Yep. I did ask the community what they use. It was interesting to hear. Chris says that he's looking into ButterFS subvolumes with four discs. The private photo videos and document subvolumes would have three copies, and legally acquired movies, etc., would only have two. Expecting that I won't have many private videos and documents usually aren't that big, but I'll have at least one copy of the irreplaceable data if two disks failed. Again, keeping constant power to those drives, so that's an option. Rob XL says four disk RAID Z2 and offsite cold storage. And Uncle Mez says he uses a 320 gigabyte external hard drive that I don't use every time, plus the most important goes to my mega.nz cloud account. So here's another option. You know who does RAID and backup storage really well is these cloud services. So you could obviously have your data backed up on your computer and then move that stuff, obviously, if it's not your password file and things, over to a cloud storage solution like MegaNZ. And then, you know, you're reliant on their data storage technologies, which generally in those server farms and things, they're using some type of RAID formats solid. and backups, and it's pretty solid. I wouldn't rely on that solely because that service could go away. Or people couldn't from your family, if you don't have somewhere where they can get to your passwords, will have no ability to access it if something was to happen to you. You got to think about those things. Absolutely. All right, Wendy. So we finally answered one of Michael's questions. Finally. Yes. This is such a good episode. So (laughs) I had another question and we're going to get to that hopefully in this episode too. And they don't just push it off another five weeks or whatever. Uh, But that I, I appreciate the thing and I'm definitely going to look into uh, doing all the stuff that you're saying and I will probably get at least one M disc for the like really important stuff, but the rest of it, I'm going to do the, you know, cheap thing and just use drives that I already have. So Wendy, take us in the camera corner and let's make Michael's day again. Yeah. Well, we've spent so much time on sensors over the last few episode so I figured it's time to dive into something else we have now a really good understanding of how our sensors work and why there's such a wide price difference and function difference between them well when you're done you've, you've captured this picture now it's time to edit it but if you're editing it on a non-calibrated screen you're not going to have the best quality in the end And it does take physical hardware to calibrate your monitor. A lot of the work in the end is done in software. You have to have both the hardware side and the software side at the same time. But just to try and eyeball it, there's no way that you are going to get it very accurate. You just killed all the work I did eyeballing my calibration for my monitor. Thanks a lot, Wendy. Awesome. You're totally welcome. I love not making your day. (laughs) Well... It seems like you're also not making my day because you're talking about answering my question. Are you making me wait again? Maybe. Ah, okay. Okay, fine. <laughs> I am interested in the calibration thing because that is important. And I do eyeball it. So that might not be the best. So, option. Wendy, my monitor has an auto color calibration feature built into it. So you're saying 
that's complete crap and I need to go buy something. No, you typically the, the auto color calibration, say that 10 times fast, can be fairly pretty good, especially when you pair that with additional color calibration. So the average ones you're going to get, there's two different types of hardware that you use in this. And the general type is called a color meter. They have little teeny sensors inside. And over those sensors are the same thing like it's our, our, in our camera. They will have a red, green, or blue filter over those. So as it's sitting on your monitor, it is collecting the light through the lens. It's hitting those sensors as it's passing through those filters. It's reading what that color is to it from the monitor and communicating on the software side on your computer as to what color is that patch supposed to be. So if you've ever color calibrated your monitor or watched a video on it, as it's running, you'll have these little squares, especially in Display Cal, which is the software side that I use that are on your screen. The hardware piece, the color calibration hardware piece is over top of that. It's reading what it's seeing as far as color goes. And the program knows what color it's supposed to be. So as it's running through those different patches, it's saying, oh, we need to make a tweak here. We need to make a tweak there as it's running through different algorithms. And depending on how many patches you do and the quality of your calibration really depends on the time it takes. There's also the age of the calibrator. We'll get into that just a little bit more later. But there's also spectrum spectrometers. Bless you. And these these are way more sophisticated way more sophisticated so in a lot of the ways it works exactly the same it's reading the color but it has 31 different color filters that are running around in a wheel type pattern that it's reading and collecting different color variations in the light a really cool thing about these is they can take two colors that are extremely close together. They're different, but close together and be able to tell the difference in them. These are more common, not in screen calibration, though they do have some for this purpose, but they're usually used in, in different industries as textiles or other things that so they're needing to match colors accurately between products. They're way more expensive. They sound way more expensive. In the end, you're getting so much more data and feedback as to what color that it's seeing. On these, depending on the way the light hits it, you can do rough textured fabrics or different shiny things. It's really neat how the way that they arrange how the light reflects off of the object in the software side through the algorithms to figure out what color it's supposed to be. So have you thought about two things? One, uh, I'm curious how much it would be like how how cost effective is it to get these calibrators and like or colorometers or whatever it is and that stuff. And two, what about the fact that there's a lot of people who don't calibrate the monitors and therefore have inaccurate color and you could just say meh and be done. The average person who's not doing creative work does not need to color calibrate their monitor. This is only important if you're A, doing photo or video work, and B, putting it out in a way that it needs to be accurate. So if you're doing something for a client, you need to be color calibrated. 
If you're doing something for your personal YouTube video, that's really up to you. You're probably going to have a better editing experience overall if you're on a color calibrated monitor. But if it's paid work, it must be color calibrated. And really after having a color calibrated monitor for years now, I really don't like to go back. Like all of my monitors, even the kitchen system is color calibrated, even though I don't do any photo work on it. Nice. But as far as price goes, this is one place that I say, go used, buy an older model. The older models are going to take more time. So when I started out, I bought a used Spider 3, I believe. So it was quite a few generations old by the time I bought it. I got it on eBay for 50 bucks at the time. It worked great. Did it take forever to calibrate? Yes, it did. It took twice as long as the one I have now. I'm currently using a Color Monkey display, color calibrator. There is another one by X-Rite that is essentially the same, but it's a little bit newer. So you'd you'd pay more for it up front. And the biggest advantage since me, I'm not using the software that comes with it. I'm using the open source version. So the biggest difference for me is it would be a little bit of faster in the color calibration. Right now, Spider, Datacolor is the company, but their color calibration hardware is called Spider. Their newest one is the Spider X. And they're saying that you can have full color calibration in two minutes. That's also what? in their software. I know that is like super crazy fast. Uh, doesn't it normally take like hours or something? For me, it usually takes about an hour and a half, but I have like close to 6,000 patches that I haven't run. So it was, that, ah. that's part of the reason why it takes so long for me is if I did less patches, it could be done in quicker time. But oh, That for, makes sense. Yeah, for accuracy purposes, I have it run more. So there's more data in the algorithms as it's figuring out how to adjust the, the screen in the end. I, I did just want to say I do. I do I, I, I've heard of the spider and I hadn't heard of the other ones. But now I kind of want a color monkey because that's just a fantastic name. Isn't that an absolutely fantastic <laughs> name? There's another company, and I cannot remember the name of them. I'll have to look them up and see. But they are, they're an open source hardware, and I believe they're out of Europe. And they also make the hardware for color calibration. And I know when I was looking to upgrade mine, I was really interested in getting one from them. But they were all out of stock. So I would love to see if theirs are up and going again because I'd love to test it. Well, I was going to ask you, now. I noticed that on the Data Color Spider X that it says system requirements, Windows or Mac. How are you getting this to work in Linux? So I am using the open source software, of course, DisplayCal, and then it uses some additional software on the back end. I got you. So it still works with that hardware. Yeah, so it still works with the hardware. Can we answer my question now? We can totally okay. answer your question. <laughs> okay. So for those who are not aware of this question, I asked it. I think I actually asked it in a, I don't know if I asked it in an episode or if I asked it on a forum or whatever, but the question was, uh, what's the, what is a prime lens and what is the difference between a prime lens and 
whatever else they're called. So a prime lens is a lens that doesn't zoom in or out. It's got a fixed focal length. So a 50 millimeter lens is a prime lens. A 50 to 75 millimeter lens would be a zoom lens. One of the mm -hmm. advantages of having a prime lens, a lens that doesn't move, is because it doesn't have the moving parts, you can usually have a wider aperture on it, aka you can let in more light on a lot of those. And I've noticed in my use, they don't collect dust inside as bad. I really like the looks of prime lenses. I like to move myself or my tripod for the most part rather than zooming. So zoom lens have definitely have their places. We were camping this last weekend. There was a blue jay hanging around. Gross. The only way that I was going to get a good picture of him was to use a zoom lens because there was no way I was getting close. Yeah, that makes sense. Although the camping thing, I agree, Gross. <laughs> oh, it's so much fun. <laughs> so on, on zoom lenses, for the most part, you'll see they'll have a range of aperture. So if they are at its lowest zoom point, it'll let in the most light. And the further you go out, then it'll have be letting in less light. To get a zoom lens that lets in a whole lot of light throughout the scale of the zoom, you're looking to drop a lot of money. And I mean a lot of money. $2,000 would be average. Oh, okay. That sounds like a no. <laughs> but prime lenses, you can typically find a really high quality prime lens for much better budget range because you're not dealing with all of those moving parts that you are in a zoom lens. And you can typically get ones that let in a whole lot of light. So depending on what you're doing, that might be a great option for you. I think you were originally looking for the prime lens to go with your um, reader thingy. My reader thingy? Your, what? Yes, your reader thingy. Your teleprompter. Yes! Uh, <laughs> teleprompter. <laughs> Te tele teleprompter. Yes, exactly. I, I, I do sorry, remember that it's now. It's been a hard tech week for me. I, I understand. What it was. I just, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's because on the listing when it said if, you, if it would work with whatever you have, it said that use a prime lens, and I, I didn't know what that meant, so I... Now, it, I assume it means it's also smaller because it doesn't need to do all the mechanics of zooming and stuff. Yeah, it, that's probably one of the reasons why it would want a smaller lens because the, the smaller prime lens, you can get them so they're really short and that would give you plenty of room between the main part of your teleprompter and where your camera is sitting so that it has enough space to actually read what's on your teleprompter. Okay, cool. And if your Thank teleprompter you. ever breaks... You know to call Wendy and have her sit on tech support because she gets everything replaced. <laughs> Every time I call yes, tech support, apparently. they're like, sorry, uh, you're going to have to call this other company we work with and they won't give you anything either. But apparently Wendy has the secret. Well, no, that's the only advantage of my tech disasters this week is that everything's getting replaced. Well, except for my dishwasher. My dishwasher is not getting replaced. But thankfully, it's one of the parts that's not very expensive. So there you go. There's that. there, yeah, that's good. I mean, the the funny thing is that you talked about the Fitbit issue, and I and I just looked it up. There's there's a lot of a lot of people who have issues with their customer support. I think that's pretty interesting. 
Yeah, Aren't they well, being bought by Google? I think they're being bought by Google. Are I don't know. Really? I didn't like Fitbit because they bought the Pebble and then destroyed it. So as soon as that, that happened. I loved the Fitbit watch as a fitness tractor. Tra- tractor. Holy crap. I really cannot talk today. So it was a fitness fit- <laughs> tracker. Fitness tracker. The Fitbit has actually worked fantastic. I mean, I've gotten some really awesome data on my workouts. The version I have is the Versa 2. So it's supposed to be the quote unquote smartwatch version as well. And I've been extremely disappointed in its smartwatch functions. I had a Huawei watch before and that thing was super awesome when it came to smartwatch functions, notifications, being able to change songs, answer calls, all that stuff. Super easy on it. Man, it was a total integration on my Versa 2. Answering calls works pretty good. Notifications are uh, changing music on it sucks. I mean, absolutely is a horrible experience. You should try the Apple Watch. No. Well, that's it. Our 13th episode of Hardware Addicts is now a wrap. Thanks for listening to the show that brings you your bi-weekly tech fix. If you're not all lit up on tech yet, then be sure to check out all the amazing content on Destination Linux Network. There's a brand new show that just dropped, Michael, and it's incredible. Exactly. It's the the pseudo show. It's an awesome it's an awesome new show that's about enterprise open source and just general tech with IT careers and stuff like that. It is fantastic. You definitely need to check it out. So head to destinationlinux.network and check out all the YouTube partners, podcasts, and everything there to fill your brains with. Remember, there's no such thing as too much hardware. Learn, build, innovate, and grow. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll see you back on the next episode for another awesome colorometer spectrum from meter. Bless you. Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> episode of this Hardware Addicts podcast. And also, if, you, if you're interested in archival data, we have our own archive of episodes that you need to check out because we have 12 other episodes that if you haven't listened to, you definitely need to. So check that out at hardwareaddicts.org. 